0: And if you have a Bible with you, open to Luke chapter 1. That's what we just read. Luke chapter 1, it's page 855 in the Black Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 1, page 855. This Advent, as I said, uh, we're going to be studying the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. Luke, you may remember, was a doctor, Luke the physician, and a missionary. He traveled around with the Apostle Paul, and he compiled... Uh, all of the most reliable resources. A lot of scholars think that Luke had a patron, uh, who not a Patreon like a podcaster, but a patron um, who gave him money to be able to k- spend his time compiling all the most reliable sources and eyewitnesses and testimonies uh, into what he calls an orderly account, so that we might have certainty. His words, in other words, that we might have confidence. That the gospel is actually true. So we're not up here preaching about like the Christian myth or something like that. Uh, This really happened. This is a historical uh, account of events that really happened uh, that were told to Luke most likely by eyewitnesses. So these first two chapters Luke shows us the coming of Christ uh, through the eyes of the very first witnesses. Something is kind of stirring in the distance, and they're not sure what it is. That's what we're looking at throughout Advent. The the coming of Christ through the witnesses of Anna, and Simeon, and Mary, and John the Baptist, Elizabeth, and this morning, Zechariah. So we'll pick up the text in verse 5. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So, immediately, Luke draws us into a hopeless situation. Zechariah and his wife are barren. Uh, They are unable to have children, and both are advanced in years. That's a polite way of saying they're too old to have a baby. Uh, Childlessness is a painful lot, um, as many dear friends of mine have experienced firsthand. Uh, Even today, it's a painful lot to have. But in Zechariah's day, it carried an added moral stigma. Psalm 127.3 says that, quote, children are a heritage from the Lord and the fruit of the womb a reward. So here's the question. What if you don't get the heritage? What if you don't get the reward? What does that say about you? Well, obviously, it's because you did something wrong, right? You're being punished by God. By the way, side note, I hear this, we don't apply this logic usually to others in our day, in our culture, at least I haven't heard people speak it a ton, but I hear people say this about themselves all the time. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people in this parish who have said something like in the face of an adversity or a setback or some kind of thorn in the flesh where they say, I don't know what I did wrong. Is God punishing me? That's not gospel logic. Uh, Luke shuts this faulty logic down. Because he says, Zechariah and Elizabeth, did they do something wrong? No. They are both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They didn't do anything wrong. These are God-fearing people. And besides this, they also come from special stock. They have the right pedigree. Um, They're both from a special tribe, which if you've read your Old Testament, you'll hear uh, the priestly tribe was the Levites. They're both Levites. And among the Levites, some groups of Levites were supposed to carry the holy vessels. Some were supposed to carry, uh, move the tent, the tabernacle. And then some, the elite Levites, were the priests. Zechariah is a priest. He's the specialist of the special. And then his wife, Elizabeth, is a son or a daughter of Aaron. That means that she is a daughter of Levites. So they have this pure, holy lineage on both sides. These are holy, righteous people who have lived righteously, and yet, what? They're left hopeless. Why? That's the question that we are left to ponder. And it actually keys us into a bigger question. Why is Israel left hopeless? Uh, the scholar Joel Green says that Zechariah and Elizabeth's predicament parallels Israel's need for divine assistance. Okay, so this isn't just a story about an old couple's fertility journey, right? This is a story about the fate of all of God's people. They're in a hopeless place. Verse 5 tells us just how hopeless it is. We learn that these are the days of Herod the king of Judea. Uh, We know from other sources that Herod was an imposter who seized power because his family uh, had an in with the Roman emperors, especially Julius Caesar. So basically, Herod's kingship was based on kissing up to the Roman overlords and uh, and getting kind of installed uh, by the superior occupiers and called king. So he was an illegitimate king, he was a Roman puppet ruler, everyone knew who was really in charge. And if you know anything about dictators, those who are most insecure about uh, their own authority tend to be, what, the most brutal. And Herod was brutal. He laid huge taxes on the people, and he used the money to fund these grandiose building projects. If you go to Israel-Palestine today, you can still see some of the things that Herod the Great built. I think he put a lot of effort into getting that the great put onto the end of his name. Uh, He filled the Jewish temple establishment with his own corrupt cronies so that he could manipulate things and keep himself in power. Uh, He was paranoid and sometimes sadistic. This is the Herod who is known in the Bible for massacring the infants in Bethlehem. So if Zechariah is hopeless because he has no child, Israel is hopeless because they have no king. It's also worth noting, this is a time of spiritual hopelessness for God's people. Uh, More than 400 years have passed since the last of the prophets, Malachi, who Courtney just did a great job of reading for us, Uh, 400 years have passed since that was written, since Malachi spoke of this coming day of the Lord. The idea was, okay, the Jews are constant. God's people are constantly being oppressed. But guess what? A day is going to come that is judgment day, the day of reckoning. And on that day, God's going to come and vanquish our enemies and raise us up. That's what Malachi was prophesying. And he said, all right, before that day comes, I'm going to send this prophet, this figure, Elijah, who's going to lead the people into righteousness. So Israel's like waiting and waiting and waiting for 400 years. Has anyone here waited for 400 years? Man, 400 seconds maybe feels like a long time for me. But many of us are familiar with the experience of hopelessness. Are we not? Um, maybe, I don't know, it's different for all of us, right? Uh, maybe your marriage collapsed and uh, some of us are, are living in a collapsed marriage and it's, it's very difficult. Some of us have uh, been through divorce and are looking at hopeless this feeling of hopelessness on the other end of it. Um, or maybe you've just been single and lonely and it feels like there's no end in sight for it. Um, maybe it's a health problem that every time you start to fix it and it seems like things are going together, it's like the tower crumbles down again, you know? Another three setbacks for every advance forward. Um, Some of us are just dealing in seasons of grief and it feels like it's never going to get brighter. Or for a lot of folks, mental health is a big deal um, and depression and anxiety is like this thick cloud. Uh, We know what hopelessness is. It's part of of being a sinner in a fallen world, right? Maybe you've prayed, Lord, where are you? Are you moving at all? Are you doing anything? Are you ever going to move? Ever? Well, Zechariah's story and really the whole gospel um, begins on the day that God moves. This is a fundamental Christian conviction. God is not an idea He's not a deistic, like, mechanistic clockmaker out in the sky who set things in motion and then left us all to ourselves. He moves here and now in this world, in our reality. So, Zechariah is on duty serving in the Jerusalem temple, and he's chosen by casting lots for the honor of offering incense in the holy place. There were so many priests back in his day That they were actually split into 24 different divisions um, or orders. And each order had two separate week-long shifts every year. Uh, This was a rare honor then. If you got called among your shift to go offer incense, like that was a special thing. Maybe only a few times in a career someone would get to do that. So Zechariah goes into the holy place, right? It's either the morning sacrifice or the evening sacrifice, and uh, he goes in to offer incense in the overlap of heaven and earth. This is the center of the world, the, most, the second most holy site. There's the holy of holies in the middle of that. But surrounding that, this is like the inner sanctum, right? And what does he see there? Well, surprise, surprise, he sees an angel from God. We don't get to know what this angel looks like. Um, I'm guessing that it is not a cute naked baby with wings. Just venturing a guess. It's not a Hallmark card. Because, I don't know about you, I would not be, well maybe I would be troubled if I saw a naked baby with wings. But, that's neither here nor there. Uh, The appearance of this angel troubles Zechariah. All throughout the scriptures, when people see angels, they are fearful. Verse 12 says, he was troubled when he saw the angel and fear fell upon him but this angel who we learn, le- learn later is Gabriel uh, reassures him he delivers news and get ready it's a lot to take in ready look at verse 13 imagine just receiving this out of the blue do not be afraid Zechariah your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth who subtext is very old will bear you a son And you shall call his name John. We've named him for you. You don't have to worry about that. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He's going to know the Lord and he's going to be a great man. He's not conceived yet, but he's going to be a great man. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord of their God. He's going to have an effective ministry. And he will go before him, before the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. By the way, Zechariah, the end of the world is coming. It's a lot to take in. Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have joy and gladness. Imagine just after ages of waiting and feeling hopeless, Joy and gladness is promised to you. It's like it's too good to be true. The longing of your heart is going to be fulfilled. You're going to get a son. But also, as it seems to always happen with God, you're also going to get more than you asked for. God doesn't just fill us up and leave us static. His plan for you is not just to give you all the things that you want with nothing of himself. It's actually to draw you into something bigger, uh, to draw you into something more. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about this, uh, that, that we think we think that God comes, we invite God into the house and think that he's just going to make a few repairs here and there, because uh, we want him to kind of fix up the wallpaper maybe. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, we let him in, and then he starts knocking down walls and like tearing out things and building on up. Ep- like other wings. And the idea is that like, you know, we expect that he's just going to make a little cottage for us, but he's constructing a mansion. You always get more than you asked for with God. Sometimes it's kind of uncomfortable. Zechariah and and Elizabeth get a child, but not just any child. Their child is going to grow up to be God's great end times or eschatological prophet. Now we've said before that a prophet is not a fortune teller or a medium. They're not just a person that says this is going to happen. A prophet is one who delivers an authoritative word from God. Thus says the Lord. So this child, who, by the way, isn't even an embryo yet. Uh, he's not even a gleam in Zechariah and Elizabeth's eye. He already has a name and a prophetic vocation. His name is John. He will prepare a people for God's great day of reckoning. And 420 years before this, God called his shots. He said to the prophet Malachi that this was going to happen. John's life was predicted 400 years before his birth. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's John. John. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So it's kind of like if you're in a middle management firm and your department has been underperforming consistently for years because of your poor leadership, uh, corporate is coming in in a year's time and they're going to perform some evaluations and they might have, have to make some cuts. But instead of just showing up and firing people, they send in coaching to help turn things around. That's what God does. He's very gracious. Before the end, he sends a prophet to lead people back to himself. He's much better than corporate America, friends. Um, That was a joke in my head. I don't know. (sighs) Thank you. Uh, So here's the the hard thing. We know how this story turns out. Um, So it's hard for us to picture this, but we know that what comes next in chapter two, Jesus, right? But Zechariah and everybody else don't know that he's not, he's not on anybody's radar screen. They're expecting end times prophet, end of the world judgment. The righteous are rewarded. The wicked are judged. End of story. So faithful Israelites like Zechariah are waiting for God to come sort things out. And uh, so he's he's hearing, oh, my son is going to be the person who will point them back before God comes with fire. And so this is two shocking pieces of news for old, hopeless Zechariah. God's going to miraculously give him a son, and his son will be the prophet that Malachi spoke about. It's a lot to take in. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that Zechariah's response is kind of at least a D-minus. He said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He offers an objection. He certainly responds with surprise, which is to be expected, but he also responds with skepticism even a kind of resignation a cynicism and that's a problem compare this to the teenage girl mary the angel gives her it later on in this chapter even more bewildering news than this but what does she say she doesn't say how shall i know this she says how will this be you see that this is going to happen i acknowledge so inform me, what is this going to look like? Mary is teachable. Zechariah is skeptical, maybe even cynical. Now, we live in a culture that regards skepticism as an inherent virtue. Um, There's nothing worse than a sucker, right? Nobody wants to be a sucker. We want to stand Uh, back from claims we don't want to be the person who's taken in by advertising because there are so many people trying to deceive us all the time so we don't want to be taken in we want to stand back from claims and commitments and be objective and have intellectual integrity to be able to say i stand on my own two feet thank you very much i know what's really happening in the world i'm not a sucker but the scriptures suggest that skepticism is not a virtue. Um, it's actually a disguised form of pride. Um, we were made to, to respond in faith and trust when God moves. There's this relational hook, hooking in to God's movement. And that is what faith is. And so that's, Zechariah doesn't have that. And so the angel is so harsh with him. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. In other words, you're standing in the presence of an angel straight from the throne of heaven, and that's not sign enough for you? You want a sign? I'll give you a sign, Zechariah. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak. Until the day that these things take place. Maybe that, this is why Elizabeth is rejoicing at the end of this passage. <laughs> you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah comes out mute. He's unable to speak. And everybody knows that he saw something in the holy place. I well, don't know what. And Zechariah goes home with Elizabeth, to Elizabeth, and they become pregnant against all odds and the episode ends with Elizabeth's grateful prayer thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people Um, now it would be easy to make this into a sermon about faith and I actually have done that before I preached this text at another church once and I talked about faith And how we need to be able to respond to God and trust God. Um, Be a Mary. Be an Elizabeth. Don't be a Zechariah. Don't blind yourself with cynicism and hopelessness. Don't give in to despair. Have faith and trust. It's in the text, right? Here's the problem. Zechariah's lack of faith is a very compelling and interesting side point in this text. Um, it is, it's, it's a side point at best, though. It is not the main focus of the passage. The overwhelming focus of the passage is God. It's God's sovereign purpose and movement. No one can compel him or coerce him, or manipulate him, or thwart him, or get in his way. He moves to turn hopelessness into joy because that is what he is designed to do. That's what he decided he's going to do. He creates John. He gives him a name and a vocation. And he's not resting upon whether Elizabeth and Zechariah are able to have a baby and get their biology sorted out somehow. He's not waiting on that. This is not a text about what people do or fail to do. Zechariah responds with faithlessness and skepticism and God says oh I guess I'll use somebody else not interested in you anymore I cast you out no he gets a son a childlike discipline but guess what God uses him anyways uses him anyways this is what what God does in and through and sometimes in spite of people when the time is just right, God appoints a prophet to prepare the people for the day of the Lord. And when the time is just right, God decides that he is going to come and instead of executing his wrath, he becomes executed. He flips the script. Instead of coming in great judgment, he comes in great humility and is himself judged. It's mind bending. God does all of this in total freedom. Totally free. He doesn't depend upon anyone's faithfulness. Not yours, not mine. So whether you're in a season of hopelessness or you're maybe you're anxious about whether you are a good enough Christian, has anyone ever felt like they're a bad Christian? I'm the worst. That's why I became a pastor. <laughs> I need to be forced to be here every week, right? Um, this text is an invitation to chill out it's not in the text but the thrust is relax and trust it's it's not about you god doesn't depend upon you he he loves you he invites you in he wants you to have joy and gladness he wants you to be caught up into what he is doing but it does not rest upon you and it does not rest upon me And that is wonderful news. Amen.